Welcome to Perceptions. I'm just saying. I'm your host, Ed Gaines, and I'd like to thank you for listening to the second reading of the Miseducation of the Negro. Author, Dr. Carter G. Woodson. Chapter 5, The Failure to Learn to Make a Living. The greatest indictment of such education as Negroes have received, however, is that they have thereby learned little as to making a living, the first essential in civilization. Rural Negroes have always known something about agriculture, and in a country where land is abundant, they have been able to make some sort of living on the soil, even though they have not always employed scientific methods of farming. In industry where the competition is keener, however, what the Negro has learned in school has had little bearing on the situation as pointed out above. In business, the role of education as a factor in the uplift of the Negro has been still less significant. The Negroes of today are unable to employ one another, and the whites are inclined to call on Negroes only when workers of their own race have been taken care of. For the solution of this problem, the miseducated Negro has offered no remedy whatever. What Negroes are now being taught does not bring their minds into harmony with life as they must face it. When a Negro student works his way through college by polishing shoes, he does not think of making a special study of the science underlying the production of the distribution of leather and its products that he may someday figure in this sphere. The Negro boy sent to college by a mechanic seldom dreams of learning mechanical engineering to build upon the foundation his father has laid, that in years to come he may figure as a contractor or a consulting engineer. The Negro girl who goes to college hardly wants to return to her mother if she is a washerwoman, but this girl should come back with sufficient knowledge of physics and chemistry and business administration to use her mother's work as a nucleus for a modern steam laundry. A white professor of a university recently resigned his position to become rich by running a laundry for Negroes in a southern city. A Negro college instructor would have considered such a suggestion an insult. The so-called education of Negro college graduates leads them to throw away opportunities which they have to go in quest of those which they do not find. In the case of the white youth in this country, they can choose their courses more at random and still succeed because of numerous opportunities offered by their people. But even they show so much more wisdom than do Negroes. For example, a year or two after the author left Harvard, he found out West, a schoolmate who was studying wool. How did you happen to go into this sort of thing? The author inquired. His people, the farmer replied, had had some experience in wool and in college he prepared for this work. On the contrary, the author studied Aristotle, Plato, Marsiglio of Padua and Pascasius Rathbertus when he was in college. His friend who studied wool, however, is now independently rich and has sufficient leisure to enjoy the cultural side of life, which is knowledge of the science underlying his business developed. But the author has to make his living by begging for a struggling cause. An observer recently saw at the market near his office a striking example of this inefficiency of our system. He often goes there at noon to buy a bit of fruit and to talk with a young woman who successfully conducts a fruit stand there in cooperation with her mother. Some years ago, he tried to teach her in high school, but her memory was poor and she could not understand what he was trying to do. She stayed a few weeks, smiling at the others who toiled, and finally she left to assist her mother in the business. She learned from her mother, however, how to make a living and be happy. This observer was reminded of this young woman soon thereafter when there came to visit him a friend who succeeded in mastering everything taught in high school at that time and later distinguished himself in college. This highly educated man brought with him a complaint against life. Having had extreme difficulty in finding an opportunity to do what he is trained to do, he has thought several times of committing suicide. A friend encouraged this despondent man to go ahead and do it. The sooner the better. The food and the air which he is now consuming may then go to keep alive someone who is in touch with life and able to grapple with his problems. This man has been educated away from the fruit stand. 
This friend had been trying to convince this misfit of the unusual opportunities for the Negroes in business, but he reprimanded his advisor for urging him to take up such a task when most Negroes thus engaged have been failures. If we invest our money in some enterprise of our own, he said, those in charge will misuse or misappropriate it. I have learned from my study of economics that we had just as well keep on throwing it away. Upon investigation, however, it was discovered that this complaint and most others like him have never invested anything in any of the Negro enterprises, although they have tried to make a living by exploiting them. But they feel a bit guilty on this account, and when they have some apparent ground for fault finding, they try to satisfy their conscience, which all but condemns them for their suicidal course of getting all they can out of the race while giving nothing back to it. Gossiping and scandal-mongering Negroes, of course, come to their assistance. Miseducated by the oppressors of the race, such Negroes expect the Negro businessman to fail anyway. They seize then upon unfavorable reports, exaggerate the situation, and circulate falsehoods throughout the world to their own undoing. You read such headlines as Greatest Negro Business Fails, Negro Bank Robbed by Its Offices, and The Twilight of the Negro Business. The miseducated Negroes then stand by saying, I told you so. Negroes cannot run business. My professors pointed that out to me years ago when I studied economics in college, and I never intend to put any of my money in any Negro enterprise. Yet, investigation shows that in proportion to the amount of capital invested, Negro enterprises manifest about as much strength as businesses of others similarly situated. Negro businessmen have made mistakes, and they still are making them. But the weak link in the chain is that they are not properly supported and do not always grow strong enough to pass through a crisis. The Negro businessman then has not failed so much as he has failed to get support of Negroes who should be mentally developed sufficiently to see the wisdom of supporting such enterprises. Now the highly educated Negroes who have studied economics at Harvard, Yale, Columbia, and Chicago will say that the Negro cannot succeed in business because their professors have never had a moment's experience in this sphere have written accordingly. The whites, they say, have the control of the natural resources and so monopolize the production of raw materials as to eliminate the competition of the Negro. Apparently, this is true. All things being equal from the point of view of the oppressor, he sees that the Negro cannot meet the test. The impatient, highly educated Negroes, therefore, say that since under the present system of capitalism, the Negro has no chance to toil upward in the economic sphere, the only hope for bettering his condition in this respect is through socialism, the overthrow of the present economic regime, and the inauguration of popular control of resources and agencies which are now being operated for personal gain. This thought is gaining ground among Negroes in this country, and it is rapidly sweeping them into the ranks of what are commonly known as communists. There can be no objection to this radical change if it brings with it some unselfish genius to do the task better than it is now being done under the present regime of the competition. Russia so far has failed to do well in this particular thing under the proletarian dictatorship in an agricultural country. But whether this millennium comes or not, the capitalistic system is so strongly entrenched at present that the radicals must struggle many years to overthrow it. And if the Negro has to wait until that time to try to improve his condition, he will be starved out so soon that he will not be here to tell the story. The Negro, therefore, like all other oppressed people, must learn to do the so-called impossible. The uneducated Negro businessman, however, is actually at work doing the very thing which the miseducated Negro has been taught to believe cannot be done. This much handicapped Negro businessman could do better if he had some assistance. But our schools are turning out men who do as much to impede the progress of the Negro in business as they do to help him. The trouble is that they do not think for themselves. 
If the highly educated Negro would forget most of the untried theories taught him in school, if he could see through the propaganda which has been instilled in his mind under the pretext of education, if he would fall in love with his own people and begin to sacrifice for their uplift, if the highly educated Negro would do these things, he could solve some of the problems now confronting the race. During recent years, we have heard much of education and business administration departments in Negro colleges, but if they be judged by the products turned out by these departments, they are not worth a continental. The teachers in this field are not prepared to do the work, and the trustees of our institutions are spending their time with trifles instead of addressing themselves to the study of a situation which threatens the Negro with economic extermination. Recently, the author saw the need for a change of attitude when a young woman came almost directly to his office after graduation from a business school to seek employment. After hearing her story, he finally told her that he would give her a trial at $15 a week. $15 a week, she cried. I cannot live on that, sir. I do not see why you cannot, he replied. You have lived for some time already, and you say that you have never had permanent employment, and you have none at all now? But a woman has to dress and to pay board, she said. And how can she do it on such a pittance? The amount offered was small, but it was a great deal more than she is worth at present. In fact, during the first six or nine months of her connection with some enterprise, it will be more service to her than she will be to the firm. Coming out of school without experience, she will be a drag on business until she learns to discharge some definite function in it. Instead of requiring the firm to pay her, she should pay it for her training. Negro business today then finds the miseducated employees its heaviest burden. Thousands of graduates of white business schools spend years in establishments and undergoing apprenticeships without pay and rejoice to have the opportunity thus to learn how to do things. The schools in which Negroes are now being trained, however, do not give our young people this point of view. They may occasionally learn the elements of stenography and accounting, but they do not learn how to apply what they have studied. The training which they undergo gives a false conception of life when they believe that the business world owes them a position of leadership. They have the idea of business training that we used to have of teaching when it was thought that we could teach anything we had studied. Graduates of our business schools lack the courage to throw themselves upon their resources and work for a commission. The large majority of them want to be sure of receiving a certain amount at the end of the week or a month. They do not seem to realize that the great strides in business have been made by paying men according to what they do. Persons with such false impressions of life are not good representatives of schools of business administration. Not long ago, a firm of Washington, D.C. appealed to the graduates of several of our colleges and offered them an inviting proposition on a commission basis. But only five of the hundreds appealed to respond and only two of the five gave satisfaction. Another would have succeeded, but he was not honest in handling money because he had learned to purloin the treasury of the athletic organization while in college. All of the others, however, were anxious to serve somewhere in an office for a small wage a week. Recently, one of the large insurance companies selected for special training in this line, 15 college graduates of our accredited institutions, and financed their special training in insurance. Only one of the number, however, rendered efficient service in this field. They all abandoned the effort after a few days' trial and accepted work in hotels with the Pullman Company. Or they went into teaching or something else with a fixed stipend until they could enter upon the practice of professions. The thought of the immediate reward, short-sightedness, and the lack of vision and courage to struggle to win the fight made them failures to begin with. They are unwilling to throw aside their coats and collars and do the groundwork of Negro business and thus make opportunities for themselves instead of begging others for a chance. The educated Negro, from the point of view of commerce and industry then, shows no mental power to understand the situation which he finds. He has apparently read his race out of that sphere, and with the exception of what the illiterate Negroes can do blindly, the field is left wide open for foreign exploitation. 
Foreigners see this opportunity as soon as they reach our shores and begin to manufacture and sell to Negroes, especially such things as caps, neckties, and house dresses, which may be produced at a small cost and under ordinary circumstances. The main problem with the Negro in this field, however, is salesmanship. That is where he is weak. It is unfortunate, too, that the educated Negro does not understand or is unwilling to start small enterprises which make the larger ones possible. If he cannot proceed according to the methods of the gigantic corporations about which he reads in his books, he does not know how to take hold of things and organize the communities of the poor along the lines of small businesses. Such training is necessary for the large majority of the Negroes conducting enterprises have not learned business methods and do not understand the possibilities of the field in which they operate. Most of them in the beginning had had no experience and started out with such knowledge as they could acquire by observing someone's business from the outside. One of them, for example, had waited on a white business club and passing the members a box of cigars or bringing a pitcher of water. When they began to discuss business, however, he had to leave the room. About the only time he could see them in action was when they were at play, indulging in extravagances which the Negro learned to take up before he could afford them. Negro businesses thus handicapped, therefore have not developed stability and capacity for growth. Practically all worthwhile Negro businesses which were flourishing in 1900 are not existing today. How did this happen? Well, Negro businessmen have had too much to do. They have not time to read the business literature and study the market upon which they depend, and they may not be sufficiently trained to do these things. They are usually operating in the dark or by hidden miss method. They cannot secure intelligent guidance because the schools are not turning out men properly trained to take up the Negro business as it is to develop and to make what it ought to be rather than find fault with it. Too often, when the founder dies, then the business dies with him or it goes to pieces soon after he passes away. For nobody has come into sufficiently close contact with him to learn the secret of his success in spite of his handicaps. The business among Negroes, too, continues individualistic in spite of advice to the contrary. The founder does not take kindly to the cooperative plan, and such business education as we now give the youth does not make their suggestions to this effect convincing. If the founder happens to be unusually successful, too, the business may outgrow his knowledge and become too unwieldy in his hands, may go to pieces by errors of judgment or because of mismanagement. It may go into the hands of whites who are usually called in at the last hour to do what they call refinancing, but what really means the actual taking over of the business from the Negroes. The Negroes then finally withdraw their patronage because they realize that it is no longer an enterprise of the race and the chapter is closed. All of the failures of the Negro business, however, are not due to troubles from without. Often the Negro businessman lacks common sense. The Negro in business, for example, too easily becomes a social lion. He sometimes plunges into the leadership in local matters. He becomes popular in restricted circles, and men of less magnetism grow jealous of his inroads. He learns how richer men of other races waste money. He builds a finer home than anybody else in the community, and in his social program he does not provide for much contact with the very people upon whom he must depend for patronage. He has the finest car, the most expensive dress, the best summer home, and so far outdistances his competitors in society that they often set to work in childlike fashion to bring him down to their level. Fashion to Chapter 6, The Educated Negro Leaves the Masses. One of the most striking evidences of the failure of higher education among Negroes is their estrangement from the masses, the very people upon whom they must eventually count for carrying out a program of progress. Of this, the Negro churches supply the most striking illustration. The large majority of Negro communicants still belong to these churches, but the more education the Negroes undergo, the less comfort they seem to find in these evangelical groups. These churches do not measure up to the standards set by the university preachers of the northern centers of learning. 
Most Negroes returning as finished products from such institutions then are forever lost to the popular Negro churches. The unchurched of this class do not become members of such congregations, and those who have thus connected themselves remain chiefly for political or personal reasons and tend to become communicants in name only. The Negro church, however, although not a shadow of what it ought to be, is the great asset of the race. It is a part of the capital that the race must invest to make its future. The Negro church has taken the lead in education in the schools of race. It has supplied a form for thought of the highly educated Negro. It has originated a large portion of the business controlled by Negroes, and in many cases it has made possible for Negro professional men to exist. It is unfortunate then that these classes do not do more to develop the institution. They are throwing away what they have to obtain something which they think they need. In many respects then, the Negro church during recent generations has become corrupt. It could be improved, but those Negroes who can help the institution have deserted it to exploiters, grafters, and libertines. The highly educated Negroes have turned away from the people in the churches, and the gap between the masses and the talented tenth is rapidly widening. Of this, many examples may be cited. When the author recently attended in Washington, D.C., one of the popular Negro churches with a membership of several thousand, he saw a striking case in evidence. While sitting there, he thought of what a power this group could become under the honest leadership of intelligent men and women. Social uplift, business, public welfare, all have their possibilities there if a score or more of our highly educated Negroes would work with these people at that center. Looking carefully throughout the audiences for such persons, however, he recognized only two college graduates, Kelly Miller and himself. But the former had come to receive from the church a donation to the community chest, and the author had come according to an appointment to make an appeal in behalf of Miss Nanny H. Burroughs' school. Neither one had manifested any interest in that particular church. This is the way most of them receive attention from our talented tent. Some highly educated Negroes say that they have not lost their interest in religion, that they have gone into churches with more intellectual atmosphere in keeping with their new thoughts and aspirations. And then there's a sort of contagious fever which takes away from the churches of their youth others of less formal education. Talking with a friend from Alabama the other day, the author found out that after her father had died and she had moved to Washington, she forsook the Baptist church in which he had been a prominent worker and joined a ritualistic church which was more fashionable. Such a change of faith is all right in a sense. For no sensible person today would dare to make an argument in favor of any particular religion. Religion is but religion if the people live up to the faith they profess. What is said here with respect to the popular churches of Negroes, which happen to be chiefly Methodist and Baptist, would hold also if they were mainly Catholic and Episcopal, provided the large majority of Negroes belong to those churches. The point here is that the ritualistic churches into which these Negroes have gone do not touch the masses, and they show no promising future for racial development. Such institutions are controlled by those who offer Negroes only limited opportunity and then sometimes on the condition that they be segregated in the court of Gentiles outside of the temple of Jehovah. How an educated Negro can thus leave the church of his people and accept such Jim Crowism has always been a puzzle. He cannot be a thinking man. It may be a sort of slave psychology which causes this preference for the leadership of the oppressor. The excuse sometimes given for seeking such religious leadership is that the Negro evangelical churches are foggy. But a thinking man would rather be behind the times and have his self-respect than compromise his manhood by accepting segregation. They say that in some Negro churches, bishopships are actually bought. But it is better for the Negro to belong to a church where one can secure a bishopship by purchase than be a member of one that would deny the promotion on account of color. With respect to developing the masses then, the Negro race has lost ground in recent years. In 1880, when the Negroes had begun to make themselves felt in teaching, the attitude of the leaders was different from what it is today. 
At that time, men went off to school to prepare themselves for the uplift of a downtrodden people. In our time, too many Negroes go to school to memorize certain facts to pass examinations for jobs. After they obtain these positions, they pay little attention to humanity. This attitude of the educated Negro toward the masses results partly from the general trend of all persons toward selfishness, but it works more disastrously among the Negroes than among the whites because the lower classes of the latter have had so much more opportunity. For some time, the author has been making a special study of the Negroes in the city of Washington to compare their condition of today with that of the past. Now, although the highly educated Negroes of the District of Columbia have multiplied and apparently are in better circumstances than ever, the masses show almost as much backwardness as they did in 1880. Sometimes you find as many as two or three storefront churches in a single block where Negroes indulge in heathen-like practices which could hardly be equaled in the jungle. The Negroes in Africa have not descended to such depths. Although born and brought up in the black belt of the South, the author never saw there such idolatrous tendencies as he has seen under the dome of the Capitol. Such conditions show that the underdeveloped Negro has been abandoned by those who should help him. The educated white man, said an observer recently, differs from the educated Negro who so readily forsakes the belated elements of his race. When a white man sees persons of his own race tending downward to a level of disgrace, he does not rest until he works out some plan to lift such unfortunates to higher ground. But the Negro forgets the delinquents of his race and goes his way to feather his own nest, as he has done in leaving the masses in the popular churches. This is sad indeed, for the Negro church is the only institution the race controls. With the exception of the feeble efforts of a few all but starved out institutions, the education of the Negro is controlled by other elements. And save the dramatization of practical education by Booker T. Washington, Negroes have not influenced the system at all in America. In business, the lack of capital, credit, and experience has prevented large undertakings to accumulate the wealth necessary for the ease and comfort essential to higher culture. In the church, however, the Negro has had sufficient freedom to develop this institution in his own way, but he has failed to do so. His religion is merely a loan from the whites who have enslaved and segregated the Negroes, and the organization, through largely an independent Negro institution, is dominated by the thought of the oppressors of the race. The educated Negro minister is so trained as to drift away from the masses and the illiterate preachers into whose hands the people inevitably fall are unable to develop a doctrine and procedure of their own. The dominant thought is to make use of the dogma of the whites as means to an end. Whether the system is what it should be or not, it serves the purpose. In chameleon-like fashion, the Negro has taken up almost everything religious which has come along instead of thinking for himself. The English spit off from the Catholics because Henry VIII had difficulty in getting sanction from the church to satisfy his lust for amorous women, and Negroes went with this ilk, singing God Save the King. Others later said the thing necessary is baptism by immersion, and the Negroes joined them as Baptists. Another circle of promoters next said we must have a new method of doing things, and we shall call ourselves Methodists, and the Negroes then embraced that faith. The Methodists and the Baptists split up further on account of the custom of holding slaves, and the Negroes arrayed themselves on the respective sides. The religious agitators divided still more on the questions beyond human power to understand, and the Negroes started out in similar fashion to imitate them. For example, 30 of the 213 religious bodies reported in 1926 were exclusively Negro, while 30 which were primarily white denominations had one or more Negro churches among their number. In other words, Negroes have gone into practically all sects established by the whites, and in addition to these, they have established 30 of their own to give the system further complication and subdivision. The situation in these churches is aggravated, too, by having too many ministers and about five times as many supervisory officials as a church embracing all Negro communicants would actually need. 
All of the Negro Methodists in the world, if united, would not need more than 12 bishops, and these would have time to direct the affairs of both Methodists and Baptists in a united church. There is no need for three or four bishops, each teaching the same faith and practice while duplicating the work of the other in the same area, merely because a long time ago somebody following the ignorant oppressors of the race in these churches committed the sin of dissension and strife. For all of this unnecessary expense, impoverished Negroes have to pay. The theology of foreigners, too, is the important factor in this disunion of the churches and the burden which they impose on an unenlightened people. Theologians have been the bane of bliss and source of woe. While bringing the joy of conquest to their own camp, they have confused the world with disputes which have divided the church and stimulated division and subdivision to the extent that it no longer functions as a Christian agency for the uplift of all men. To begin with, theology is of pagan origin. Albert Magnus and Thomas Aquinas worked out the first system of it by applying to religious discussion the logic of Aristotle, a pagan philosopher who believed neither in creation of the world nor the immortality of the soul. At best, it was degenerate learning based upon the theory that knowledge is gained by the mind working upon itself rather than upon matter or through sense of perception. The world was, therefore, confused with the discussion of absurdities as it is today by those of prominent churchmen. By their peculiar reasoning, too, theologians have sanctioned most of the ills of the ages. They justify the Inquisition, serfdom, and slavery. Theologians of our time defend segregation and the annihilation of one race by another. They have drifted away from righteousness into an effort to make wrong seem to be right. While we must hold the Negroes responsible for following these ignorant theorists, we should not charge to their account the origination of this nonsense with which they have confused thoughtless people. As said above, the Negro has been so busy doing what he is told to do that he has not stopped long enough to think about the meaning of these things. He has borrowed the ideas of his traducers instead of delving into things and working out some thought of his own. The Negro leaders of these religious factions know better, but they hold their following by keeping the people divided and emphasizing non-essentials and the insignificance of which the average man may not appreciate. The highly educated Negroes who know better than to follow these unprincipled men have abandoned these popular churches. While serving as the avenue of the oppressor's propaganda, the Negro church, although doing some good, has prevented the union of diverse elements and has kept the race too weak to overcome foes who have purposely taught Negroes how to quarrel and fight about trifles until their enemies can overcome them. This is the keynote to the control of the so-called inferior races by the self-styled superior. The one who thinks and plans while the other, in excited fashion, seizes upon and destroys his brother with whom he should cooperate. Chapter 7, Dissension and Weakness In recent years, the churches and enlightened centers have devoted less attention to dissension than formerly, but in the rural districts and small cities, they have not changed much, and neither in urban communities nor in the country has anyone succeeded in bringing these churches together to work for their general welfare. The militant sects are still fighting one another, and in addition to this, the members of these sects are contending among themselves. The spirit of Christ cannot dwell in such an atmosphere. Recent experiences show that the dissensions are about rank as ever. For example, a rural community in which an observer spent three weeks a year ago has no church at all, although eight or ten families live there. No church can thrive among them because, with one or two exceptions, each family represents a different denomination, and the sectarian bias is so pronounced that one will not accept the procedure of the other. Each one loves his fellow man if he thinks as he does, but if his fellow man does not, he hates and shuns him. In another rural community, where the same observer recently spent two weeks, he found a small and poorly attended Methodist church. Worshipping there one Sunday morning, he counted only four persons who lived in the community. 
Others might have come, for there was no other church for them in that place. But this particular church was not of their faith, and their number was too small to justify the establishment of one to their liking. The support given the unfortunate pastor there is so meager that he can hardly afford to come to them once a month, and consequently these peasants are practically without spiritual leadership. People who are so directed as to develop such an attitude are handicapped for life. Someone recently inquired as to why the religious schools do not teach the people how to tolerate differences of opinion and to cooperate for the common good. This, however, is the thing which these institutions have refused to do. Religious schools have been established, but they are considered necessary to supply workers for denominational outposts and to keep alive the sectarian bias by which the Baptists hope to outstrip the Methodists or the latter, the former. No teacher in one of these schools has advanced a single thought which has become a working principle in Christendom, and not one of these centers is worthy of the name of the school of theology. If one would bring together all of the teachers in such schools and carefully sift them, he would not find in the whole group a sufficient number qualified to conduct one accredited school of religion. The large majority of them are engaged in imparting to the youth worn-out theories of the ignorant oppressor. This lack of qualified teachers in Negro schools of theology, however, is not altogether the fault of the teachers themselves. It is due largely to the system to which they belong. Their schools of theology are impoverished by the unnecessary multiplication and consequently the instructors are either poorly paid or not compensated at all. Many of them have to farm, conduct enterprises, or pastor churches to make a living while trying to teach. Often then, only the inefficient can be retained under such circumstances. Yet those who see how they have failed because of these things nevertheless object to the unification of the churches as taught by Jesus of Nazareth, whom they all but cease to follow because of their sectarian bias obtained from thumb-worn books of misguided Americans and Europeans. Recently, an observer saw a result of this in the sermon of a Negro college graduate trying to preach to a church of the masses. He referred to all the great men in the history of a certain country to show how religious they were, whether they were or not. When he undertook to establish the Christian character of Napoleon, however, several felt like leaving the place in disgust. The climax of the service was a prayer by another miseducated Negro who devoted most of the time to thanking God for Cicero and Demosthenes. Here, then, was a case of the religion of the pagan handed down by the enslaver and segregationist to the Negro. Returning from the table to where he had placed his offering in a church on a Sunday morning not long thereafter, this observer saw another striking example of this failure to hit the mark. He stopped to inquire of his friend, Jim Minor, as to why he had not responded to the appeal for a collection. What? said Jim. I ain't giving that man nothing. That man ain't fed me this morning, and I ain't feeding him. This was Jim's reaction to a scholarly sermon entitled, The Humiliation of the Incarnation. During the discourse, too, the minister had much to say about John Knox Orthodox, and another of the communicants bowing at their shrine inquired of the observer later as to who this John Knox Orthodox was and where he lived. The observer could not answer all of the inquiries thus evoked, but he tried to explain the best he could that the speaker had studied history and theology. This was the effect this sermon had on an earnest congregation. The minister had attended a school of theology, but had merely memorized words and phrases which meant little to him and nothing to those who heard his discourse. The school in which he had been trained followed the traditional course of ministers, devoting most of the time to dead languages and dead issues. He had given attention to polytheism, monotheism, and the doctrine of the Trinity. He had studied also the philosophical basis of the Caucasian dogma, the elements of that theology, and the schism by which fanatics made religion a football and multiplied wars only to moisten the soil of Europe with the blood of unoffending men. This minister had given no attention to the religious background of the Negroes to whom he was trying to preach. 
He knew nothing of their spiritual endowment and their religious experience as influenced by their traditions and environment in which the religion of the Negro has developed and expressed itself. He did not seem to know anything about their present situation. These honest people, therefore, knew nothing additional when he had finished his discourse. As one communicant pointed out, their wants had not been supplied, and they wondered where they might go to hear a word which had some bearing upon the life which they had to live. Not long ago, when the author was in Virginia and inquired about a man who was once a popular preacher in that state, he is here, they said, but he is not preaching now. He went off to school, and when he came back, the people could not understand what he was talking about. Then he began to find fault with the people because they would not come to church. He called them foggy because they did not appreciate his new style of preaching and the things he talked about. The church went down to nothing, and he finally left it and took up farming. In a rural community, then, a preacher of this type must fail unless he can organize separately members of the popular Methodist and Baptist churches who go into the ritualistic churches or establish certain refined Methodist or Baptist churches catering to the talented tenth. For lack of adequate numbers, however, such churches often fail to develop sufficient force to do very much for themselves or for anybody else. On Sunday morning, then, their pastors have to talk to benches, while the truncated churches go higher in their own atmosphere of self-satisfaction, the mentally underdeveloped are left to sink lower because of the lack of contact with the better trained. If the latter exercised a little more judgment, they would be able to influence these people for good by gradually introducing advanced ideas. Because our highly educated people do not do this, large numbers of Negroes drift into churches led by the uneducated ministers who can scarcely read and write. These preachers do not know much of what is found in school books and can hardly make use of a library in working out a sermon. But they understand the people with whom they deal, and they make such use of the human laboratory that sometimes they become experts in solving vexing problems and meeting social needs. They would be much better preachers if they could have attended a school devoted to the development of the mind rather than to cramming it with extraneous matters which have no bearing on the task which lies before them. Unfortunately, however, very few of such schools of religion now exist. For lack of intelligent guidance, then, the Negro church often fulfills a mission to the contrary of that for which it was established. Because the Negro church is such a free field and it is controlled largely by the Negro themselves, it seems that practically all the incompetents and undesirables who have been barred from other walks of life by race, prejudice, and economic difficulties have rushed into the ministry for the exploitation of the people. Honest ministers who are trying to do their duty then find their task made difficult by these men who stoop to practically everything conceivable. Almost anybody of the lowest type may get into the Negro ministry. The Methodists claim that they have strict regulations to prevent this, but their net draws in proportionately as many undesirables as one finds among the Baptists. As an evidence of the depths to which the institution has gone, a resident of Cincinnati recently reported a case of its exploitation by a railroad man who lost his job and later all his earnings in a game in a den of vice in that city. To refinance himself, he took an old black frock coat and a Bible and went to the heart of Tennessee where he conducted at various points a series of distracted, protracted meetings which netted him 299 converts to the faith and $400 in cash. He was enabled thereby to return to the game in Cincinnati and he is still in the lead. Other such cases are frequently reported. The large majority of Negro preachers today then are doing nothing more than to keep up the medieval hellfire scare which the whites have long since abandoned to emphasize the humanitarian trend in religion through systematized education. The young people of the Negro race could be held in church by some such program, but the Negro's Christianity does not conceive of social uplift as a duty of the church. And consequently, Negro children have not been adequately trained in religious matters to be equal to the social demands upon them. 
turning their back on medievalism then, these untrained youth think nothing of taking up moonshining, gambling, and racketeering as occupations, and they find great joy in smoking, drinking, and fornication as diversions. They cannot accept the old ideas, and they do not understand the new. What the Negro church is, however, has been determined largely by what the white man has taught the race by precept and example. We must remember that the Negroes learned their religion from the early white Methodists and Baptists who evangelized the slaves and the poor whites who were barred from proselytizing the aristocracy. The American white people themselves taught Negroes to specialize unduly in the praise of the Lord. Hallelujah worship. In the West Indies among the Anglicans and among the Latin people, Negroes do not show such emotionalism. They are cold and conservative. Some of the American whites, moreover, are just as far behind in this respect as are the Negroes who have had less opportunity to learn better. While in Miami, Florida, not long ago, the author found in two interracial holiness churches that the following was a third or fourth white. The whites joined wholeheartedly with the Negroes in their holy rolling, and some of them seemed to be rollers not holy. A few months ago in Huntington, West Virginia, where the author was being entertained by friends, the party was disturbed throughout the evening by the most insane outbursts of white worshipers in a church of God across the street. There they daily indulge in such whooping and screaming in unknown tongues that the Negroes have had to report them to the police as a nuisance. The author has made a careful study of the Negro church, but he has never known Negroes do anything to surpass the performance of those heathen. The American Negroes' ideas of morality, too, were borrowed from their owners. The Negroes could not be expected to raise a higher standard than their aristocratic governing class that teemed with sin and vice. This corrupt state of things did not easily pass away. The Negroes have never seen any striking examples among the whites to help them in matters of religion. Even during the colonial period, the whites claimed that their ministers sent to the colonies by the Anglican Church, the progenitor of the Protestant Episcopal Church in America, were a degenerate class that exploited the people for money to waste it in racing horses and drinking liquor. Some of these ministers were known to have illicit relations with women and therefore winked at the sins of the officers of their churches, who sold their own offspring by slave women. Although the author was born 10 years after the Civil War, the morals and religion of that regime continued even into his time. Many of the rich or well-to-do white men belonging to the churches in Buckingham County, Virginia, indulged in polygamy. They raised one family by a white woman and another by a colored or a poor white woman. Both the owner of the large slate quarry and the proprietor of the largest factory in that county lived in this fashion. One was an outstanding Episcopalian and the other a distinguished Catholic. One day, the foreman of the factory, a polygamous deacon of the local white Baptist church, called the workmen together at noon for a short memorial service in honor of Parsons Taylor, for almost half a century the pastor of the large white Baptist church in that section. The foreman made some remarks on the life of the distinguished minister, and then all sang, Shall we meet beyond the river? But to save his life, the author could not restrain himself from wondering all that time whether the foreman's wife or colored paramour would greet him on the other side, and what a conflict there would be if they happened to get into the old-fashioned hair-pulling. In spite of his libertine connections, however, the foreman believed that he was a Christian, and when he died, his eulogist commended his soul to God. Some years later, when the author was serving his six years' apprenticeship in the West Virginia coal mines, he found at Noodleburg a very faithful vestryman of the white Episcopal Church at that point. He was one of the most devout from the point of view of his co-workers. Yet privately, this man boasted of having participated in that most brutal lynching of the four Negroes who thus met their doom at the hands of an angry mob in Clifton Forge, Virginia in 1892. It is very clear then that if Negroes got their conception of religion from slaveholders, libertines, and murderers, there may be something wrong about it, and it would not hurt to investigate it. It has been said that the Negroes do not connect morals with religion. 
the historian would like to know what race or nation does such a thing. Certainly whites with whom the Negroes have come into contact have not done so. Chapter 8, Professional Education Discouraged. In the training for professions other than the ministry and teaching, the Negro has not had full sway. An extensive comment on the professional education of the Negro then must be mainly negative. We have not had sufficient professional schools upon which we can base an estimate of what the Negro educator can do in this sphere. If mistakes have been made in miseducating the Negro professionally, it must be charged not so much to the account of the Negroes themselves as to that of their friends who have performed this task. We are dealing here then mainly with the information obtained from the study of Negroes who have been professionally trained by whites in their own schools and in mixed institutions. The largest number of Negroes in professions other than the ministry or education are physicians, dentists, pharmacists, lawyers, and actors. The numbers in these and other lines have not adequately increased because of the economic status of the Negroes and probably because of the false conception of the role of a professional man in the community and its relation to him. The people whom the Negro professional men have volunteered to serve have not always given them sufficient support to develop that standing and solidarity which will make their position professional and influential. Most whites in contact with Negroes, always the teachers of their brethren in black, both by precept and practice, have treated the professions as aristocratic spheres to which Negroes should not aspire. We have had, then, a much smaller number than those who, under different circumstances, would have dared to cross the line. And those that did so were starved out by whites who would not treat them as a professional class. This made it impracticable for Negroes to employ them in spheres in which they could not function efficiently. For example, because of a law that a man could not be admitted to the bar in Delaware without practicing a year under some lawyer in the state, and no white lawyer would grant a Negro such an opportunity until a few years ago, it was only recently that a Negro was admitted there. Negroes then learned from their oppressors to say to their children that there were certain spheres into which they should not go because they would have no chance therein for development. In a number of places, young men were discouraged and frightened away from certain professions by the poor showing made by those trying to function in them. Few had the courage to face this ordeal, and some professional schools and institutions for Negroes were closed about 30 or 40 years ago, partly on this account. This was especially true of the law schools, closed during the wave of legislation against the Negro at the very time the largest possible number of Negroes needed to know the law for the protection of their civil and political rights. In other words, the thing which the patient needed most to pass the crisis was taken from him that he might more easily die. This one act among many others is an outstanding monument to the stupidity or malevolence of those in charge of Negro schools, and it serves as a striking demonstration of the miseducation of the race. Almost any observer remembers distinctly the hard trials of the Negro lawyers. A striking example of their difficulties was supplied by the case of the first to be permanently established in Huntington, West Virginia. The author had entrusted to him the matter of correcting an error in the transfer of some property purchased from one of the most popular white attorneys in the state. For six months, this simple transaction was delayed, and the Negro lawyer could not induce the white attorney to act. The author finally went to the office himself to complain of the delay. The white attorney frankly declared that he had not taken up the matter because he did not care to treat with a Negro attorney. But he would deal with the author, who happened to be at that time the teacher of a Negro school and was, therefore, in his place. At one time, the Negroes in medicine and co-related fields were regarded in the same light. They had difficulty in making their own people believe that they could cure a complaint fill a tooth, or compound a prescription. The whites said that they could not do it, and of course, if the whites said so, it was true, so far as most Negroes were concerned. In those fields, however, 
Actual demonstrations to the contrary have convinced a sufficient number of both Negroes and whites that such an attitude towards these classes is false. But there are many Negroes who still follow those early teachings, especially the highly educated, who in schools have been given the scientific reasons for it. It is a most remarkable process that while in one department of a university, a Negro may be studying for a profession, in another department of the same university, he is being shown how the Negro professional men cannot succeed. Some of the highly educated then give their practice to those who are often inferior to the Negroes whom they thus pass by. Although there has been an increase in these particular spheres, however, the professions among Negroes with the exception of teaching and preaching are still undermanned. In the same way the Negro was once discouraged and dissuaded from taking up designing, drafting, architecture, engineering, and chemistry, the whites, they were told, will not employ you and your people cannot provide such opportunities. The thought of pioneering or of developing the Negro to the extent that he might figure in this sphere did not dawn on those monitors of the Negroes preparing for their life's work. This tradition is still a heavy load in Negro education, and it forces many Negroes out of spheres in which they might function into those for which they may not have any aptitude. In music, dramatics, and correlated arts, too, the Negro has been unfortunately misled. Because the Negro is gifted as a singer and can render more successfully than others the music of his own people, he has been told that he does not need training. Scores of those who have undertaken to function in this sphere without adequate education, then, have developed only to a certain point beyond which they have not had ability to go. We cannot easily estimate how popular Negro musicians and their music might have become had they been taught to the contrary. Of these, several instances may be cited. A distinguished man talking recently as a member of a large Episcopal church, which maintains a Negro mission, mentioned his objection to the budget of $1,500 a year for music for these segregated communicants. And as much as the Negroes were naturally gifted in music, he did not believe that any expensive training or direction was required. The small number of Negro colleges and universities which undertake the training of the Negro in music is further evidence of the belief that the Negro is all but perfect in this field and should direct his attention to the traditional curricula. The same misunderstanding with respect to the Negro in dramatics is also evident. We have long had the belief that the Negro is a natural actor who does not require any stimulus for further development. In this assertion is the idea that because the Negro is good at dancing, joking, minstrelsy, and the like he is in his place when cutting a shine and does not need to be trained to function in a higher sphere of dramatics. Thus misled, large numbers of Negroes ambitious for the stage have not bloomed forth into great possibilities. Too many of them have finally ended with roles in questionable cafes, cabarets, and nightclubs of America and Europe, and instead of increasing the prestige of the Negro, they have brought the race into disgrace. We scarcely realize what a poor showing we make in dramatics in spite of our natural aptitude in this sphere. Only about half a dozen Negro actors have achieved greatness, but we have more actors and showmen than any other professional except teachers and ministers. Where are these thousands of men and women in the histronic sphere? What do we hear of them? What have they achieved? Their record shows that only a few measure up to the standard of the modern stage. Most of these would-be artists have no preparation for the tasks undertaken. A careful study of the Negro in dramatics shows that only those who have actually taken the time to train themselves as they should be have finally endured. Their salvation has been to realize that adequate training is the surest way to attain artistic maturity. And those few who have thus understood the situation clearly demonstrate our ineptitude in the failure to educate the Negroes along the lines in which they could have admirably succeeded. Some of our schools have for some time undertaken this work as imitators of institutions dealing with persons otherwise circumstanced. Desirable results, therefore, have not followed, and the Negro on stage is still mainly the product of the trial and error method.
Several other reasons may be given for the failure of a large number of Negro actors to reach a higher level. In the first place, they have been recognized by the white man only in purely plantation comedy and minstrelsy. And because of the large number entering the field, it has failed to offer a bright future for many such aspirants. Repeatedly told by the white man that he could not function as an actor in a different sphere, the American Negro has all but ceased to attempt anything else. The successful career of, of Ira Aldridge in Shakespeare was forgotten until recently recalled by the dramatic success of Paul Robeson in Othello. The large majority of Negroes have settled down then to contentment as ordinary clowns and comedians. They have not had the courage or they have not learned how to break over the unnatural barriers that occupy higher ground. The Negro author is no exception to traditional rule. He writes, but the white man is supposed to know more about everything than the Negro. So who wants a book written by a Negro about one? As a rule, not even a Negro himself, for if he is really educated, he must show that he has the appreciation for the best in literature. The Negro author, then, can neither find a publisher nor a reader, and his story remains untold. The Negro editors and reporters were once treated the same way, but thanks to the uneducated printers who founded most of our newspapers which have succeeded, these men of vision have made it possible for the educated Negroes to make a living in this sphere in proportion as they recover from their education and learn to deal with the Negro as he is and where he is. Thank you for listening to the reading of this book brought to you by Word Search Puzzle Therapy and Adult Coloring Book. And we hope to see you guys again next Thursday. Have a great day. I'm Ed.